You know, one of the questions that comes up a lot these days is what are presidents going to do after the presidency? And we're to have a little competition here. Oh, and <laughs> here's the game. When did the post-presidency become a thing? Okay, a thing. Gosh. I mean, I can I can throw a pitch into the <laughs> of course to the game. I I don't know if I want to argue that John Quincy Adams makes it a thing, but he's you know the first president that has a really prominent post-president career. Right. You know, I mean, he John Quincy Adams, he and John Adams are the only one-termers. <laughs> and then, you know, he basically isn't done with public life. There's things he still wants to do. He ends up, I don't think this was his plan, but he ends up being elected not to the Senate, but to the House. Right. And being an ex-president and the descendant of a founder in the House of Representatives. Yeah, how did you, that work? You, you, yeah, you become a really powerful guy, <laughs> right. you know? I right. mean, it's that means something if you're going to go up against John Quincy Adams. So that's, you know, that gave him some some added clout. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the, the Adams case in particular is one where you, I think, would say you see the real power symbolically of the president to do things in other realms of yeah. political life. So not simply about kind of retiring to one's estate, but still having platform credibility. I mean, John Quincy Adams becomes a very verbal anti-slavery advocate in right. a way that is, is easier as a congressman than it, even as a president, right? He's not abolishing slavery during the time that he's president of the United States, but he's advocating for an end of slavery by the time he gets to the House. And so I think there's a, a way that you can look at the Quincy Adams moment as one in which at least the symbolic power of the president gets converted into some kind of political capital to continue to be about the governing of the country. Okay. Well, maybe it's the bureaucrat in me, but when I think of a thing, I think of a thing that's kind of going to continue, or right. at least happen more often than not, or maybe be just more than one. <laughs> so my problem with, and we haven't said who's judging this competition, but my problem with the Quincy <laughs> Adams thing is it's not I, a thing. I, I don't see what happens with the next president, Andrew Jackson. Right. 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 No, right, right, right. It, it is not a thing with... Andrew Jackson. Right. And, and, and there, are, there are a lot of extenuating cir circumstances about life expectancy and what people are willing right. to do, how public people actually are. I mean, even the, the, the notion of a celebrity is still very much in the making in the 19th century in an in, in American sense. Um, I mean, this is certainly the case that people have made for Ulysses S. Grant. Um, it, is, it is Grant, by, by many accounts, who is seen as being probably the first really prominent post-president, helping to create a public persona that is different from simply the fact of him having been president. But isn't he a one-off also? I wouldn't say in the same way, because, I mean, if, if you think about a kind of long 20th century, um, there, are a way in, there, there are many ways in which the kind of memoiring president becomes a, a real ah, feature of right. what becomes the, the office and what it can mean going forward. Hmm. Um, and now you, you get to the point where, of course, it's presumed that every president will have a memoir after they leave office. Um, and that has a lot to do with the genre really being inaugurated by, by Grant. Now, that's really cool. So you're saying that hmm. Grant created that template plate of securing one's legacy by writing, well, in Grant's case, a really well, brilliant but, uh, memoir. So, 
I'll toss in, though, that um, what, what we're talking about with Grant is a public-minded persona. You know, the, if you go all the way back, I mean, Washington doesn't live very long, but if you're looking at um, Adams and Jefferson and Madison, you know, they spend years after their presidency organizing their papers very carefully That's That's so true. that they're presenting themselves to posterity. It's just a different, in a sense, a different kind of memoir. Well, I'm going to make a case for doing, not just writing or organizing. Mm. And I'm putting my money as a thing on the Teddy Roosevelt-Taft mm. combo, right? <laughs> Teddy, Ooh, the combo. Teddy, the combo, <laughs> right? It's, it's a thing because there's more than one of them. Okay. Uh, but right. uh, you've got a, ver- a very dynamic president in Teddy Roosevelt. Many scholars would say he created or began to create the modern presidency, certainly Mm. the 20th century presidency, active president, believed in executive authority, et cetera, et cetera, leaves the presidency after those two terms, uh, but then comes back and runs in 1912 – as uh, in one of the most exciting elections in American history. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he doesn't win, but Roosevelt was very active after he was president. In fact, was a, you know, a lot of people thought that he had a good chance of becoming president again in 1912. Now, Taft, uh, he leaves the presidency and then becomes chief justice of the Supreme Court. A pretty important position. And so I'm arguing that the combination of the rise of the modern president, especially uh, being Mm -hmm. very important in ongoing foreign relations uh, with these two guys back to back who uh, either run for a very important position, the president again, or hold a very important position, that kind of shapes notions of the possibility of these very important guys doing pretty important things even after they're president. Well, I think that's, that's it. That's, a- that's it. I got nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> but that no, makes sense, right? Because it does. the, the it does. office itself changes. I mean, that's part of what you're saying here, which is totally true. That the, but the 20th mm-hmm. century presidency is a very different thing from the 19th century yes. presidency, and so yes. they they take that persona and that authority with them, which, as you're suggesting, they can then deploy in a way, in a conscious kind of a way that that maybe their predecessors couldn't. Um, I, I do have a question, though, that, that relates to this. And mm-hmm. part of uh, maybe a, a switch on the, the thing that we're looking for <laughs> would be not just presidents with post-presidency careers, but presidents who are better as post-presidents, right? <laughs> oh, I mean, that's a great question. I've got yeah, my candidate. I've got my candidate. But I want to hear from you guys. No, I want to hear from you guys first. Brian. Oh, my God. But I want to hear from you guys first. I want to hear from you guys first just so I, mean, I can trump you. And Trump is right. not my candidate, by the way. John Quincy Adams is. It was, but he's like by himself there as a guy right, who was much right. better in Congress than he was as president. Right. Well, I mean, this this one. I mean, this is kind of a gimme. So forgive me, Brian, if I end up stealing your answer. But it's got to be Jimmy Carter. Yes. Yes. <laughs> two to one. Even two I, to one. The twentieth century. Even I. No. Even I was going to say that's the first thing that comes to mind. But as a as a not twentieth century person, I figured that I couldn't jump in with Jimmy Carter. Yeah. No. Okay. So but Nathan, why are we right? Okay. 
<laughs> okay, so obviously Carter had a lot of problems as a, as a one-term president and, and had a lot to do with— Right, so being really bad is one of the keys here <laughs> as president. As, as president. It helps. Yeah. Um, it also helps that Jimmy Carter is, again, very long-lived, right? We're, we're, we're lucky to still have him as someone who is also very vocal yep. um, and, and really overt in his declarations about human rights. He is a, a very avid uh, opinion maker in the realm of foreign policy. And, and in one last necessary plug, I think, for Carter um, as the greatest post-president president, <laughs> I guess I would say, is that he really does change the game for all of his subsequent post-presidents insofar as he has the Carter Center, which becomes this amazing philanthropic organization. You, know, you think about in the mid-1980s when it's established, it goes after eradicating guinea worm and succeeds in saving the lives of millions of people. You think about Bush and Clinton allying themselves, Bush won and Clinton allying themselves to you know, fundraise on behalf of uh, anti-poverty measures. You think about the way that presidents are basically making very prominent yeah. appearances together yeah. in public to fundraise mm-hmm. for hurricanes across the world, right? I mean, again, mm-hmm. this is one more example, earthquakes and the like. And all of this is done through these various philanthropies. And so, again, I think it's a, it's a, a combination of the dismantling of certain kinds of social services, making philanthropy more necessary and these nonprofits more necessary, but that presidents themselves kind of rise to that shift in the political culture and begin to imagine themselves as spokespeople of these various foundations. 